beloved congregation of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, when we talk about Christmas, what does Christmas mean for you? When you think about Christmas, do you think about holidays, beaches and barbecues? Or do you think about Christmas concerts, Christmas carols? Of course, if you would be in Europe or in North America for Christmas, you might think about skiing or sledding, Christmas turkeys and warm apple cider. On the other hand, if you would be living in a Muslim country where Christians are persecuted, or if you would live in Brazil or Indonesia on the mission field, what you would expect for Christmas would be totally different again. What Christmas means for you depends on who you are and where you live. But imagine, brothers and sisters, Imagine what Christmas meant for the Son of God. Before Christmas Day, before Jesus was a baby boy in Bethlehem, before that the Son of God lived in heaven, and in heaven he was never hungry, never cold, and he never had to do homework or help with dishes. Instead, he was king over heaven and earth. He had everything and he could do whatever he liked. But nine months before Christmas Day, the Son of God came down from his throne in heaven and he entered into the womb of Mary. So the Son of God became the son of an unmarried young lady who was engaged to a carpenter. And nine months later, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. For, Je for Jesus, Christmas meant changing from a king to a baby, from a throne to a cradle, from a palace to a stable. That happened to Jesus on Christmas Day. And why Jesus had to change from being a king on a throne to a baby in a cradle? Why? We saw that last week in Lord's Day 5. Lord's Day 5 says that God demands that his justice be satisfied. And therefore, we must make full payment. A human being sinned, so a human being must make payment. We get that. We also understand the payment that God requires of us is not so much payment for that sin, and so much more payment for that wrongdoing? No, brothers and sisters, God is not an accountant. And God is not satisfied to measure out how much we owe him. God is not satisfied when we give him exactly what we owe him. Instead, remember, God created us to know him and to love him. Now God still wants us to know him and to love him. That is still the payment that God requires of us. Like a man loves his wife. And he wants her heart. He wants her love. So the Lord wants us to love him. 
That was Lord's Day 5. But today, the Catechism asks a different question. Why was Christmas necessary? Why did God insist that our Saviour should become a true and righteous man? The answer to this question is the theme for the sermon of this afternoon. Namely, when the Son of God became a man like us, God could attack and destroy our sins. And we pay attention to two points. God first attacked and destroyed sin in Jesus Christ. God now attacks and destroys sin in our hearts and our lives. When the Son of God became a man like us, God could attack and destroy our sins. We see first how God attacked and destroyed sin in Jesus Christ. Again, our Saviour had to be a true and righteous man, the Catechism tells us. And that sounds reasonable. Adam was a human being. We're all human beings and we all sinned. So, for the Son of God to save us, he must become like us. He must become a human being just like the rest of us. Now, boys and girls, if your mum tells you to clean your room, and if you don't do what your mum says, if your mum tells you a second time, just imagine, imagine that you go to your room and you start to clean up, but then you find a nice book and you sit down and you start to read and you forget about cleaning your room. If your mum comes into your room and finds you reading, she might scold you. She might punish you and then you will clean your room. No fun. And you don't do it happily, but you do it anyways. But what would you do, girls and boys? What would you do if your mum would come into your room and she would not scold you? And she would not punish you? What would you do if instead your mum would go down on her knees? And if she would start to clean the mess that you have on the floor? Would you feel happy? Would you say, ha, now I don't have to do it? I don't think so. Instead, you would feel guilty. You would feel ashamed of yourself. And that feeling of shame would hurt you more than any punishment. And in the same way, God created Adam and Eve. God put Adam and Eve in a high position over all of creation. They only had to listen to God. But Adam and Eve were proud. They wanted to be even better. They wanted to be like God, equal to God. And they did not want to have anybody over them, not even God. So when God saw that Adam and Eve were proud and wanted this high position, then then did God give them a blast? Did God grind them into the dirt and show them how small and pathetic they really were? Not at all. Instead, says Paul in Philippians 2, instead God humbled himself and God became like us 
In fact, God became a servant of us all. God says, you people, you want to be great? I will become nothing. You want to be masters of this planet? I will become your servant. Understand, brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve were like the rest of us, always reaching up, always wanting to climb up, to be noble, to be respectable, to be dignified, somebody important. But God comes down to us in the gospel and he becomes the lowest of us all. And when the Holy Spirit holds up this example before us, beloved congregation, this example, the story of Christmas, this is powerful to crush even the proudest of hearts. It makes us humble ourselves before God. And it teaches us how foolish and how selfish we really are. This is one reason why God became a man. And this is always God's response to human pride, brothers and sisters. When I feel important, when I imagine that I am somebody important, God does not cut me down to size or grind me into the dirt. Instead, he brings me to Bethlehem, to the manger, where the Son of God once lay. And God says to me, in your pride, in your arrogance, you are imitating the sin of Adam and Eve. But Jesus Christ, my Son, he has showed you another way. And that is the way of humility, the way of humble service. That is my way to salvation. And make no mistake, if we will not humble ourselves as he did, if we will not serve as he did, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is part one of the reason why the Son of God became a man. But there's also a second reason. Paul says in Romans 8 that God wanted to condemn sin in sinful man. Jesus became a man because God wanted to condemn sin in sinful man. To understand this, think about some of the pests, some of the insects, maybe even mice that we might find in or around our house. If we have trouble with ants, spiders, cockroaches, mum and dad might tell us to keep the doors closed because otherwise these pests are sure to come inside our home. And of course, when we see these animals inside our house, we try to kill them one by one. But we also understand that killing a few insects or catching an occasional mouse is not going to solve our problem. Instead, instead we need to find the nest, the place where these animals are breeding, and we must destroy that. Then no more insects and no more pests will be born anymore. And so naturally, they will not come into our house anymore either. To really solve the problem, 
We must deal with the problem at its source. And so we understand. So we understand when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Satan, Satan made his home in their hearts. Satan made his home in the human heart. And today, for Satan, this place is like a nest. In here Satan works and he plots, he schemes to tempt me, to deceive me, to manipulate me so that I sin. And so Jesus became a human being so that Jesus might have a human heart, so that in Jesus there might be a headquarters where Satan might attempt to build for himself a home so that, so that in Jesus God might engage in battle against Satan and God might destroy Satan's power totally and eternally. Jesus became a man, says Paul, so that in Jesus God might locate and attack and destroy the power of sin for once and for all. And we find an even more striking picture of beloved congregation in the war against terrorism, which has been fought for many years against Al-Qaeda. In that war against terrorism, numerous terrorists have been killed and dozens of hijackers have been arrested. But how many more terrorists will have to be killed? And how many more hijackers will have to be arrested before the war is finally won? Before Al-Qaeda is utterly and totally destroyed? For the West, more than 15 years of fighting against terrorism has been like bashing our heads against a brick wall. Because reality is that killing terrorists does not win the war. Arresting hijackers does not make this world a safer place. Why not? Because every terrorist that is killed has been replaced by another one. And ten new hijackers are being trained for every one that is destroyed. Ultimately, the war against terrorism can only be won when our soldiers can make their way into the headquarters of Al-Qaeda so that the leaders of the terrorists can be arrested or killed. You cannot win a war by killing soldiers or by destroying an army. And so, for a long time, Every effort was made to kill Osama bin Laden because he was the heart, he was the brains of the enemy. But what happened when Osama bin Laden was killed? Did Al-Qaeda fold and was terrorism destroyed? Not at all. Because the real enemy was not Osama bin Laden. Instead, the real enemy was Satan and he had made his headquarters not just in Osama bin Laden, not just in the leaders of Al-Qaeda. Instead, Satan made his headquarters. And he still maintains his headquarters in the hearts of unbelieving men. And so we understand what Paul says in Romans 8. When God wanted to destroy the power of sin, what did God need to do? God had to attack Satan in his headquarters, that is, in the human heart. Jesus Christ became a man because the devil had made his home, his headquarters, 
in the heart and the mind of sinful man. So for God to overcome the devil, for God to destroy the power of sin, God had to attack the devil in his headquarters. So Jesus Christ became a true man, so that in him God might fight and win this battle. So Jesus had to be a true man. But the Catechism adds, Jesus also had to be a righteous man. That means a man, a perfect man, a man without sin. And think about if you would apply to join the police force, you would first have to go to the doctor for a checkup. If you wanted to become a police officer, the doctor would examine your ears, your eyes, and the rest of your body to be sure that you are healthy. And so we understand when Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us the gospel. Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us when Jesus began to do his work of saving the world, one of the first things that had to happen, God first sent his son into the desert to be tested, to be tempted by the devil. Jesus first had to have that comprehensive examination to see whether or not he was qualified to be our saviour. And when Jesus refused to be tempted by Satan, when he passed the test, he proved that he is righteous. And so Jesus could go to the cross. He could satisfy the wrath of God because he has what it takes to pay for our sins. Like any person is accepted to join the police force, after he passes the admissions test, in the same way, Jesus qualified to be our saviour when he was tempted by Satan in the desert. And yet, for Jesus to be righteous, it was not enough for him to be tested in the desert and to pass the test and to get a certificate. For Jesus being righteous was not just a question of what he was. Instead, when God created Adam and Eve, they were righteous. When God created Adam and Eve, on the one hand, and when Jesus started his ministry, on the other hand, Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ were the same. They were just as righteous as each other. But this is the difference. When Adam and Eve were in paradise, every day God held out his hand to them. Every day God said to them, My children, I love you. Now what will you do with my love? How will you respond to my love? And every day, Adam and Eve could say, We love you, God. We love you with our heart, soul and mind and with all our strength. And so we are righteous. Until one day, they fell into sin. And then, when God came to find them in the garden, when God wanted to speak to them in love and have them respond to him in love, on that day, Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. There was no response of love. They were unrighteous. And now, every day, 
God still comes to us. And every day, God still speaks to us in his word. And he asks us, my children, how will you respond to my love? Every day, through his word, God says, my children, I give you everything that you need. I have even given you my son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die in your place so that you can live. Now, what will you do with my love? Beloved congregation, God has every right to expect us all to respond to his love. God has every right to expect us to love him in return. But we don't. And so it is very important, brothers and sisters. It is very important that the Lord Jesus Christ told John the Baptist, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. That means Jesus says, Father in heaven, you want to see righteousness? When you love, you want to hear a response? You want to hear an echo? You want somebody to love you back? Look at me, Father. See how I lived when I was a child in Nazareth. I obeyed my parents every day. Remember how I treated my friends. Father in heaven, I also loved you more than any other person. And I loved all my neighbours as myself. Father in heaven, everything I did was righteous. Every report card that Jesus got when Jesus was at school must have said, this is a perfect child. Every report card must have said, Jesus is always obedient, always respectful, always knows his memory work. And then Jesus can talk about every day of his life. He can refer to every single conversation he ever had with fishermen and church leaders, with unbelieving kings and governors. Jesus can send a full resume to his father. And that resume will say, every day, Every moment of every day, this man Jesus has been righteous in every way. Jesus had to become a true and righteous man. Why? Because you and I, because we were proud, we did not want to be below anybody else. Instead, we wanted to be like God in high positions of majesty and importance. And then God responds to our love by humbling himself. God responds to our pride by being our servant, our slave, on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. Not just as an act to show this is how good I am. No, brothers and sisters, that was how he always lived his life. Here we see that God has a sense of humour. God shows us how ridiculous we are. Little people trying to impress, pretending that we are important. The Son of God became like us so that he might attack and destroy the power of sin that had made its home 
in our hearts. That is our first point. In our second point, we will now consider the confession that God attacks and destroys our sins in our hearts and our lives. When Jesus died on the cross in Jesus' body, God condemned sin. When we hear the word condemn, we think of God as a judge. Sometimes God justifies. He says that we are innocent. Or otherwise, he condemns. He says that we are guilty. And then it is true. God did condemn sin in our hearts, like a judge condemns. God did condemn sin in the sense that God said sin is bad. But to condemn sin is only one first step. The United Nations can condemn North Korea, for example. But then what happens? The United Nations does nothing else. And that's pretty useless. But, and now I apologise because my next example is a little bit outdated. But some of you will remember that some years ago, the United Nations condemned Saddam Hussein. They said that Saddam Hussein was evil and had to be gotten rid of. And then the United Nations also did something. They attacked Iraq and they utterly destroyed the power of Saddam Hussein. And in the same way, God both pronounced judgment on sin and God also executed his judgment when he poured out his wrath on Golgotha on Good Friday. Then he destroyed the body and the soul of Jesus Christ. And in the body and the soul of Jesus Christ, God condemned, God fought against, and God destroyed the power of Satan. So that in principle, Satan no longer has power in the human heart. And that means, of course, that Satan no longer has power in the world anywhere. And this is where it becomes difficult, brothers and sisters. In the life of Jesus Christ, God condemned sin in the human heart. In the life of Jesus Christ, God destroyed the power of sin. But, but what God did in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, what does that do for you? What does it do for me? That battle which God fought and won in the heart of Jesus Christ on the cross of Golgotha, how does that affect us? Our form for baptism says that we were all conceived and born in sin. And that means starting from the day that we were born, even before that in fact, Satan was living in our hearts. And so the form for baptism continues. So we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. And that means when we are born, Satan is living in our hearts. Satan is in control. And then being born again, that means God must come into our hearts. God must fight 
a battle against Satan here inside every single one of our human hearts. And only after God has fought and won this battle, only after God has regenerated us by his Holy Spirit, only after that can we enter the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. That battle which God fought against Satan on Golgotha in the heart of Jesus Christ, that same battle must be fought in my heart and in your heart as well. And then, some people talk about the danger of television and about the danger of the internet. Some people talk about beer and wine and other drugs as if these substances are dangerous. Almost as if Satan was living in those little bottles. But, beloved congregation, Paul says in Romans 8 that Satan does not attack the church from inside the television. Satan does not attack the church from inside a beer bottle or from inside the nightclub for that matter either. If Satan would be out there it would be so easy for us to keep Satan out of our lives. If Satan was out there, we could all avoid Satan by moving into a monastery. But again, again, Satan has made his headquarters in the human heart. And now Satan attacks us from inside our own hearts. And that means there is no way to escape the battle. We can throw out the television and the internet. We can ban alcohol from our homes. We can add all kinds of discipline and control to our lives. To try to keep Satan outside the door, but it won't work. And then, I acknowledge that we and our children desperately need some discipline. Because Satan has made his headquarters in our hearts, we need all the help we can get in the battle against Satan. And so, we need worldly entertainment like we need a hole in the head, brothers and sisters. We also need ungodly friends like we need a hole in the head. But, we don't need to start with rules. Instead, we need to start with the gospel. And with the gospel, we need to start near the beginning of our lives. We need to start at baptism. When we were baptized, we were baptized into Jesus Christ, even into his death. And so we share in Christ's victory over Satan. We share in Christ's victory over Satan. And so the power of Satan in our hearts and in our lives is broken. And every day... Every day when we take our Bibles, when we read our Bibles, then we receive the love of God. Then we receive the Holy Spirit and that gives us life. It gives us power. It gives us energy so that, so that in the first place we respond to God's love and we love God in return. Then we love God more than we love our sports more than we love our hobbies, 
more than we love any of our friends. We love God more than we love anything else in the whole world. And then, depending, depending on how often we read our Bibles, depending on how steadfastly we pray, depending on our choice of friends, depending on the decisions that we make for our social life, depending on our self-discipline, depending on so many other things. Yes, there is still sin in our lives. There is still much sin in our lives. But we have peace with God. We have peace with God because the human heart, even our renewed and sanctified human heart, although Satan is still working in here, Satan is still working in here to spread sin, to spread misery, and to spread pain throughout the world. In our hearts, a battle is being fought. Jesus Christ is overcoming the work of Satan. The Holy Spirit is overcoming the power of Satan. That battle in our hearts and our lives, that battle will have to be fought for as long as we live in this broken world. Because for so long, Satan will not leave us alone. But even while we continue to fight this battle, something important has happened. Jesus Christ has become a man, so that in him, the devil's headquarters has been destroyed. So that when we read our Bibles, when we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, God pours out his love into our hearts so that we respond to his love by loving him in return. So by his power and by faith in him, we begin to share in his victory over sin. And then we still have questions and there are still challenges in our lives. But we have a saviour who is powerful and who is willing to help us. So let us live close to God with our Bibles open. Let us be amazed by his awesome promises, by his steadfast love, his power. Then we can experience his amazing grace. May the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, who became a man in order that he might destroy the sinfulness of man in himself. May that gospel encourage us in the coming week. Let us trust him, love him, and rely on the power of his Spirit. Amen.